for a while, my buddy, who's kind of a mentor, also asked me, what are you spending the least amount of time on and making the most amount of money? And I was like, actually, it's this little Airbnb unit, but I only have one of them. And he was like, well, if that's what it is, why don't you expand it? Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. So Ready to Scale is our new second season here, where we focus on the business side of real estate, namely three key concepts that I like to call APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. By listening in, you will learn valuable business principles to help your real estate business, whatever it may be, thrive and diversify. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us and don't forget to like and follow along with me on social media as well. Okay, so for the month of January, I'm giving away the guide to increasing your property income. The guide is built in three parts. So part one of the guide will discuss ways to directly increase income from tenants, meaning strategies you can implement directly to collect more money from your tenants. Part two of the guide will discuss indirect strategies to increase income, meaning ways to make the property more desirable so more tenants will want to live there and perhaps even pay higher rents than some other cheaper options. Part two discusses ways to increase income by implementing ideas that do not add any value to tenants, but still allow you to make extra money. You can find the guide at www.elliepearlman.com slash resources. All right, let's get to the show. So our guest today is Jay Martin. Jay is a founder and moderator of the San Francisco Bay Real Estate Networking Summit. Despite barely graduating from high school, Jay has grown up to be the CEO of JTM Real Estate Group, a real estate investing company. Jay quit his W-2 job 10 years ago and spends his time networking and traveling. Jay used to have a negative net worth, but after networking with other investors and learning more, he acquired small properties in Oakland and Richmond, California. He then went to add about 20 furnished rentals to his portfolio through Silicon Valley and the East Bay. Jay owns a business that arbitrages Airbnb rentals and is a big believer in outsourcing work to free up time. Without further ado, I would like to welcome Jay to the show. Hey, Jay. Thank you. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? How are you today? Doing well. Also in beautiful, sunny California. I'm in San Francisco right now. Just got back from China. Oh, and from China. What did you do in China? I was just hanging out. I went to Shanghai to eat some Shaolin Bao. That's where it's from. A little <laughs> soup dumpling, so. 
Very nice. Well, Jay, can you share with our listeners a little bit more about your background and how you started, you know, with real estate? Absolutely. So first of all, I'm a felon. I got busted for selling cocaine when I was 19 years old and went to jail. So that was probably the biggest motivating factor in my life that got me started into something better. I think everyone has some type of motivation behind what they do. I don't recommend everyone go to jail to get motivation, but that's <laughs> kind of what got a fire under my ass to get started. After that, I ended up actually working in bank regulation of all things, and we would review real estate loans at these banks on site during the financial crisis. So I saw people lose a lot of money and then some people kind of picking up the pieces. And like so many things, when you see someone else capitalizing an opportunity, I think it's great to open your eyes and see if maybe that's available to you also. So I got started by buying a, a fourplex with an FHA loan after that. Wow. So how do you move from, you know, being in jail and moving from jail to banking? You know, after I got out of jail, I basically decided I was going to find some way to make money that was legal. And I ended up going back to community college, transferred to San Francisco State University because Apparently, they'll take anyone, even, even felons. I did really well in some classes, and I ended up getting a job at the state of California. I did really well in someone's class, and they worked there and recommended me, and I took a test and scored well and did all this stuff. A little technicality on the felony, you know, they're really looking for crimes that are directly related to the job. So if it would have been like fraud or theft or something, I wouldn't have been able to get the job. But I was fortunate to get that. So that's kind of the transition that I got from, from solitary confinement into an actual real W-2 job. Wow. So no longer have, but that's how I got started. <laughs> awesome. So you're, you're working, you know, for a bank and this is where you get exposure for the first time to real estate and you see the mistakes, you know, others do. What happened since then, you know, today you're investing in Airbnb rentals, but what happened from owning a W2 job to basically making the jump and say, you know what, I want to work for myself. I want to become an investor. Yeah, I think that's a huge transition in my life. And I think what a lot of people aspire to in some ways, or at least be more financially free for me, it was buying a few different properties that built a little bit of cash flow. And what really got me started was, um, actually, I got to give a shout out to Al Williamson, uh, the gentleman who pushed me to get started into Airbnb. And I started with basically an extra bedroom that I ended up sort of turning into a studio. And that worked really well. I was making money on it for a while. My buddy, who's kind of a mentor, also asked me, what are you spending the least amount of time on and making the most amount of money? And I was like, actually, it's this little Airbnb unit, but I only have one of them. And he was like, well, if that's what it is, why don't you expand it? So I slowly started adding and now up to, I think, 20, maybe 21, 22 units that I have a team in the Philippines manage. And these are all Airbnb apartments that are mostly in Silicon Valley and a little bit of the East Bay in the San Francisco Bay Area. So literally, it was just in, in nudging, nudging by one person to get me started with one. And then, of course, that built to two, three, five, 10, 20 and onwards. Interesting. Interesting. So you're you're investing in Airbnb, which is a good segue to our discussion about assets. When you're buying Airbnbs, first of all, do you rent them from owners and then rent them out as Airbnbs or do you purchase them? Great question. And the answer is both. I started actually with doing some places that I was already renting that I personally had lived in, added some units that I already own myself. 
but at least in the Bay Area with the pricing here, you know, I didn't want to have to raise $20 million to buy enough properties just to operate the business that I wanted to operate. In all honesty, it wouldn't be quite that much, but you know, it's about $500 a square foot plus where I'm operating to purchase a property. So a lot of these, I just paid the market unfurnished one year rent, put furniture inside, and then rent it out on Airbnb. I tell the owners exactly what's going on. There are other investors. They're totally fine with it. And I always get these questions. Why would they let you do it? Because I'm a good tenant. I take care of their property and I guarantee the rent. It's basically like free property management along with guaranteed rent is how they see it rather than who's going out to make money off their property. <laughs> so I think it's a really, really good point because if you're renting the house as an Airbnb to other people, you have an incentive to keep the house at a good shape, to keep it clean, to maintain it. So I actually, I never thought about it. That That's a really good point. Yeah, and it gets and, clean and inspected, you know, on a very regular basis. So that's a nice kind of little bonus for them is that you're not going to get one of these like six month leaks that the tenant never told you about. Mm-hmm. And there can, you know, if you have good credit and other things, there's some other compensating things for the owners, but that's kind of the fundamentals of the, the value exchange. Interesting. And, you know, the other question that I had for you was how do you know which, you know, how do you choose the right asset to be converted to an Airbnb? Is it just a function of, you know, the location or are you looking for specific characteristics? I mean, how does it work? Yeah, choosing the right place to Airbnb can be a little bit of a trick. There are a lot of different variety of size and locations that do work for Airbnb. A lot of people call this Airbnb arbitrage when someone's renting and then re-renting, essentially a sublease. Uh, What we've been really successful with is in these core metro areas, specifically the San Francisco Bay Area, is to have studios, one bedrooms, or two bedrooms, so apartments that are not in HOA condo areas, People are really want to be close to work. So being close to the major metro centers, close to train stations so people can get around are super important. And then sometimes parking also. But that's those smaller units in these core metro areas. Hospitals are great. Universities are great. Big job clusters are great. And public transportation due to the traffic have all been successful. Got it. That's interesting. So you basically have your your criteria in terms mainly around transportation, where you think, okay, if someone is going to pay for this Airbnb, they would probably want to be close to all the, you know, the transportation, you know, have good transportation and be able to explore the city. So this is where you position basically your investments. Yeah, exactly. And we have a little bit of a twist. A lot of the rentals that we do are actually over one month. So our average, I believe, is about 56 days is how long our stay is for these furnished rentals. So Mm. we do some short-term rentals also. You know, people want to be near the same things, essentially. Oftentimes, the jobs are also where the downtown is and other things like that. So we're kind of playing to a couple different markets. But that's why the jobs and the transportation are especially important for us because we get a lot more business travelers in Silicon Valley. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, Silicon Valley is very expensive, so I can get why this is a top market for Airbnb. And you know what? I wish we could do it here in Santa Monica, but the it's actually illegal. You can't have Airbnb here. I am going to respectfully disagree with you and tell you that all these short-term rental regulations that I've ever seen in the United States of America ban rentals under 30 days or possibly under True. 31 days. So it's not against furnished rentals. It's not against Airbnb. And if you do something similar to the business that I do, where we primarily rent for over 30 days, 
you're entirely exempt from every regulation that's been written regarding short-term rental. Oh, that's interesting. Well, most Airbnbs are, you know, it's shorter than 30 days. And then we also have this thing called bed tax. So I know because I was kind of curious about it. So I looked into it a couple of years ago. And I mean, I understand what they're doing. They're trying to basically keep prices down because the more Airbnbs are out there, the fewer apartments for long-term, you know, leases and then, you know, the supply shrinks and rents go up and they want to protect tenants by, you know, pushing rents down or preventing them from increasing. So that's what's happening, basically. In my opinion, I think that's the excuse and what the truth is, because this is really a very small percentage that are on Airbnb. But I think what the truth is, is that the cities don't allow enough housing to be constructed. And this is the scapegoat, (laughs) in my opinion. (laughs) But actually, I wanted to share an interesting fact that I heard from another furnished rental person the other day. They said of all the nights stayed away from home, like paid paid lodging, hotels, Airbnb, etc. in the United States, something like 35% of those nights are stayed by people that stay longer than 30 days. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because you're saying like, oh, yeah, Airbnb, it's mostly short term. And it is. But a third of all the travel going on in the United States is happening for a longer than 30-day duration. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there because you're in a similar area to me. It's expensive. There's a lot of business Mm -hmm. going on. There's a lot of business travelers, people moving into town for a while, probably travel nurses. And it may be the case that you can be exempt from those short-term rental regulations and capture the one-third of the travel market that's over 30 days in duration. Interesting. Interesting. That's definitely something I, I was not aware of. I want to move and talk about, you know, move to the second part of our interview and talk about the strategy. And you mentioned it, you know, you, you talked about an arbitrage Airbnb. Can you talk a little bit more about maybe we start with how it works in general? And then also, what are the one thing that you recommend our listeners if they're trying to do this to avoid doing? For strategy, I would say my number one strategy when it comes to all of my businesses, investments, is that I don't want to have to show up in person to make money. So for this business, if I have to you know, show up at any point, it's not going to work because I'm usually outside the country. So that's kind of my overarching philosophy and strategy that I approach all my businesses with. So what I did is hired uh, several people in the Philippines to basically run the business. So to do all the inquiries, the bookings, maintenance requests anything that comes in, they're going to handle it. So that's kind of my overarching philosophy and strategy. And the main thing that I did to implement that is to create a written standard operating procedure that basically identifies all the key procedures, tasks, et cetera, in the business, and then gave that you know, to someone else to operate and have them learn it, think about it, do it, make recommendations instead of doing it myself. Interesting. So you basically had kind of a a little book that says, this is what happens. You kind of map the entire process and then each step of the process, what they should do. So when you find those people, you said in the Philippines, how do you make sure to find the right people? Because you do trust them with an investment, right? They need to make decisions on, you know, they probably screen tenants, they answer, you know, maintenance questions and requests. How do you find the right people? Yeah, that's a great question. I think part of this is just more of an overall, you know, HR, like how do you hire someone, having a thorough process, having written procedures on what they're supposed to be doing, being very clear about what it is that you're looking for, both the preferred skill sets 
and the absolute necessary ones. I was a little bit flexible and not necessarily hiring people with direct experience in this industry, but as long as they had a customer service background, I thought that was the kind of foundation of what they would need in this type of position. So to me, I, I always think about what kind of background is going to be good for this because it's not always easy to find people who have that exact same experience and sometimes they can have their own preconceptions about what it should be like. So I would say that's the, the kind of foundation is what's their background, you know, can they, can they handle that? And then a big part of it is testing them out. So we have basically these written procedures and then tests in the early phase of when they're working to see if they can get through these things independently while following a thorough procedure document. So I think that initial phase of selecting people who have the right kind of background for what kind of job you need, and then being able to test them and train them early on to determine if they have the, the capacity to work in that kind of field is a great way to initially screen people. And then I think by then you'll find out pretty quickly who works and who doesn't, you know, within a, within a month or so. Got it. This is a a great segue to the process part of our conversation. What tools do you use to find people? Do you use any any specific, is it an agency that you use, that you're using, or is it a website? How do you find people? Yeah, so I used to use Upwork and Outsourcely, but more recently I've been using onlinejobs.ph, and that's a Philippines-only website. We basically found that we were hiring everyone from the Philippines anyway off of Upwork and the other ones. So... This is just, I think, the most direct, the best pricing, and there's no ongoing fees when someone starts working for you. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Got it. So you hire people from the Philippines. What tools do you use to manage them? Because obviously they're overseas. And you mentioned earlier that within a month, you'll know who's doing their job and who's not. What kind of tools do you use to oversee their work and also evaluate their work? So the main tool that I use to do to evaluate their work is I look at the profit at the end of the month and over the last quarter and year. And if that's, you know, if we're hitting six figures, then generally I'm happy. It's funny. Someone said like, how do you know if they're working all the time? And I said, you know, I used to work in an office and I only worked half the time. So I don't know how they could tell when I was sitting next to them either. But, <laughs> but so one of my employees there is a manager. She's responsible for performance, managing everyone. They use Teamwork as a project management tool. So I think it's teamwork.com is like a you know, web-based t- uh, platform. We used Google Docs and Google Sheets for all of our standard operating procedures, analysis, shared documents, all that stuff. Google Drive, we use LastPass to keep track of passwords for different websites. So you can create admin user controls for all the different websites and things like that. I also use an app called SuccessWiz, which it's like a daily journal with like gratitude, you know, what you want to accomplish, longer term goals, and then you can set up a daily schedule. So I use that instead of an online planner or a a written planner. I would say those are probably the biggest things that we use in our day-to-day to to manage a remote team. We use Slack also for communication. Mm, Yeah, Slack is a good one. All right. Well, perfect. My last question on the process side is... How do you choose in the process what things you want to keep doing as Jay and what things you want to outsource to your team? This answer is pretty easy for me because for me, the answer is everything I want to be outsourced to my team. 
for me, I think the easiest things to start outsourcing are the things that require the least amount of discretion, the least amount of decision-making and or that are repetitive or recurring tasks. So I think that's a great place to start. But to me, again, I don't want to show up and really I don't want to have to do any work at all, which is why I hire a manager and just told them basically not to contact me. So for me, that's just my philosophy. <laughs> so it's easy to answer the question because I don't want to do any of it. <laughs> I'm the laziest <laughs> entrepreneur everything. alive. <laughs> yeah. But in, in a way, right. that forces me though to be able to you know, outsource those things. So I think there's some benefits maybe in lazy. Well, very interesting. Well, thank you, Jay, for sharing this with us. We have arrived to the last part of the interview, which is the lightning round questions. So question number one, what's your favorite hobby? Ooh, I like watercolor painting. Mm, interesting. Not great at it, but it's fun. I play the ukulele too. Oh, wow. All right. That was surprising. What's the number one thing that people don't know about you? A lot of people don't know about my felony. Some more people are learning because I've been sharing that a lot more. But yeah, I was in jail for almost three months and got in a fight, went to solitary confinement. And last time I did coke and last time I got in a fight was back then. So, All right. What do you wish you had known when you first started out? I think the number one thing I wish I would have known is to go out and talk to people and network more. That's something I didn't do early on and I would be way further ahead if I would be networking, listening to podcasts, uh, you know, going to the bigger pockets forums. I just didn't do that early enough. Got it. What's the number one advice you would give a real estate investor who wants to scale their business? Get great written standard operating procedures in place, I think is the number one thing if you want to scale and if you want to detach either or uh, from your business. I also wanted to shout out for a, a good book that got me motivated. It's called, I think it's Work This System, Why Most Entrepreneurs Fail is this like subtitle, I forget the author's name, but it's a great book mm -hmm. that goes through the process of developing a good standard operating procedure to either scale, grow, and or outsource the business. All right, perfect. And lastly, Jay, where can people find you? I think the best spot, I got a contact form on my website. It's sfbsummit.com. And that's for our event in February in Oakland. We just get a lot of real estate investors together to network, uh, to kind of do what I should have done earlier in the process. <laughs> but now that I'm driving the world the whole time, I can do. So yeah, reach out at uh, sfbsummit.com where I'm a real estate nomad on uh, the social media stuff. All right. Perfect. Well, Jay, thank you so much again for sharing your story and your knowledge about Airbnb rentals and outsourcing. I definitely, you know, learned a few things and I'm sure, you know, our listeners also learned a thing or two from our conversation. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.